while they receive the offering, why don't you guys pull out your Bibles? You are going to need a Bible this morning. Um, and so if you didn't bring your Bible, you forgot a Bible, maybe you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible underneath the seat you're sitting in. It's a white Bible. It should be there. Um, and so reach down there, grab that, pull that out. If you don't own a Bible, you don't have a Bible at your house, steal that one, all right? You can, when you pass out those little cards, you can tell your friends, yeah, I went there and I stole a Bible, and they're going to look at you really funny. It's going to be awesome. Um, we're going to be in Psalm 22 and Matthew 27. Psalm 22 and Matthew 27. So what you might want to do is slip to Psalm 22, which is in the, right in the middle of the Bible. If you open up right to the middle, you let it fall open. You'll hit Psalms. Uh, you can find Psalm 22, put your finger there, and then flip over to Matthew 27 and put another finger there, and you can just hold it just like that, because we're going to flip back and forth uh, three times. We're going to flip back and forth between Matthew 27 and Psalm 22. We've been in this series um, for quite a while now, a couple months we've been in this series uh, called, um, what, are we, what is it called? The Anatomy of the Soul. I've said it a hundred times in a couple months, but I can't remember. Um, we, we've been in this series now for a couple months, The Anatomy of the Soul. And for those of you who have been around, you, you know where this idea comes from, right? The, the great reformer and theologian John Calvin said the Psalms are an anatomy of all parts of the soul. Um, and what he means is that all of, every human emotion is, is, is boils up, is unpacked and unearthed in the Psalms. All of our longings, all of our desires, um, it's all there. The way that we long and the way that we find joy, it's, it's all here in, in the Psalms. And this morning, we're going to be looking at this idea of the deliverer of the soul. How, how is our soul preserved and delivered? How, who is this deliverer of the soul? And um, there's only three weeks left after today, three weeks left in, in this series um, and, the, and here's the deal. Some of these have been uh, really, really joyful and fun. We've talked about the joy of the soul and the, the delight of the soul. Some of them have been really, really heavy and weighty and kind of, kind of dark in some ways. Um, the next three Sundays are going to be joy and delight and goodness and hope, um, kind of all unpacking these psalms that are just, just fun and exciting and, and good to hear about. Today is not that, okay? I'm just preparing you straight, straight out of the gate. Psalm 22 is, um, has fascinated me over the past few weeks. Um, we were actually supposed to preach on it last week, and we, we bumped it to, to this Sunday, and um, it, it has just been this thing that is um, just kind of blowing my mind a little bit. Psalm 22, um, there, there, there is a person who is speaking in this psalm, um, and, he, and he talks about what is happening to him immediately in that moment, but then he reveals what he's thinking in that moment. So what's actually happening, and then he moves and says, here's what I'm actually thinking, and here's what I'm actually feeling, and this is what I, I'm believing to be true in this moment. The person that's being talked about, um, I'm going to argue this morning, is Jesus. You see, the psalm is not written by Jesus. In fact, it's written by uh, King David, who lived some 1,000 years before Jesus was ever born, okay? Um, and, and yet he writes this psalm, and it's not about him. David wrote most of the psalms, as we've talked about, and most of the psalms that David writes are about him. 
It's a moment in his life, and he takes that moment, and he kind of unpacks the emotions, and it says, here's how God restored, here's how God engaged my soul in that, um, and then he writes a prayer or a song about it. But this one is not him. He, he writes it, yes, but it doesn't describe him. The one being described here um, experiences things that David never experienced. Historians read this and say, this is definitely not David who's being described here. And I'm going to make the case this morning that the one that is writing, the one that is speaking, is not David at all, but Jesus himself. Which is strange because it was written a thousand years before Jesus ever showed up on earth. You see, it's what we call a messianic prophecy. It's a story, a prophecy, a foreshadowing of the Messiah, the one who's going to come, the one who's going to restore Israel, the one who's going to reign and rule as king. It's a foreshadowing of a specific moment, actually, in Jesus' life. It's a foreshadowing of the cross, the foreshadowing of his death. And so you have Jesus speaking about this moment, a thousand years, over a thousand years before it ever happened. You have Jesus speaking about this moment, but not just speaking about it, sharing what he's thinking about it. Have you ever wondered what Jesus was thinking on the cross? What was going through his mind on the cross? You see, the gospel writers, Matthew and Luke and John, all recount in, in, in detail um, the cross and what, what happened there. But none of them can tell you what he was thinking. Only Jesus can tell you that. And he does in Psalm 22. And so let's, let's dive in. What you're going to see, again, is um, the person saying, here's what's happening to me, and then here's what I'm thinking. So here it is. Here's what's happening to this person, Jesus, in Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Okay, we'll stop right there for a second. Jesus, the person speaking here, says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Why have you abandoned me, right? As I said before, this is, and it'll become more clear as we wade into this, this is Jesus on the cross, um, saying, this is, this is the moment. My God, my God, where are you? I cry out to you by day, but you seem so far off. You seem so far away. Where are you? Have you abandoned me? Have you forsaken me? Have you left me? Matthew, um, in Matthew 27, where we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning, Matthew um, stood right there. He is, he is a witness to what happened to Jesus on Calvary. He is a witness to, to the nails, to the thorns. And he, he depicts the moment, he writes the moment of what happened there in his, in his own eyes, in his own words. He writes this in Matthew 27, verse 45 through 46. He says this, Now from the sixth hour... There was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus on the cross cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jesus on the cross says the exact words that are said in Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, maybe, maybe he's just quoting it. Maybe it's just kind of a coincidence. Maybe David wrote this about himself, and, and it's just a coincidence, right? As we dig in, you'll realize, oh, no, no, no. It's no coincidence. Jesus cries out in that moment, in that moment, all of his friends have abandoned him. They have forsaken him. All of his friends are either in hiding because they don't want the same thing to happen to them, right? The the Romans are out for blood and they don't want to engage in that. Or they're straight up denying him altogether, right? Peter's like, people are like, Peter, you you were with him, right? You're one of his disciples. I don't even know that guy. I have have nothing to do with him. I I don't know. That guy there, I've never seen him before in my life, right? Peter Peter is distancing himself from the situation, forsaking Christ. And in that moment, even God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even God, in that moment, releases his grasp, removes his hand. And in that moment, Jesus absorbs all of the wrath of God for your sin, for your failure, for your shortcomings, for your missteps, and mine. And God steps back and gives him over to death and sorrow and suffering. And in that moment, what is he thinking? What's going through his mind? My my God, my God, where are you? What's going through his mind? He tells us in the very next verse in Psalm 22, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. What is he thinking in that moment? My God, my God, where are you? Have you left me? I cry, but I, do, but I, don't, I, don't, I don't hear any response. You're, you're, not, you're not answering me. You're not rescuing me. You're not coming to my aid. Where are you? Yet you are holy, and you are enthroned on the praises of the nation of Israel, and I have thousands and thousands and thousands of years of human history that teach me and remind me that you are faithful to those who are faithful. You are trustworthy. My God, my God, where where are you? I don't see you. You're not responding. But you are here. And you are trustworthy. He is the only one who is worthy of all of our trust. The only one who never fails. The only one who never leaves. He is here and he is enough. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? You are here. I know you are here. And that is enough for me. Can you say that? Can you say that? When, when the doctor calls and it's, it's cancer, can you say that? When you fight it and you say, it's going to be okay, I'm going to get better, and you don't. 
And you say, man, God, where are you? I've been praying. I've been asking, but you haven't responded. Can you say, it's okay. I know you're here. I trust you. And that's enough for me. This may not go the way that I want it to go, but you are enough for me. And the boss calls, and there's no job left for you tomorrow. You say, it's okay. Jesus is with me. It's going to be okay. We're going to get through this. But then the days turn into weeks, and the weeks turn into months. And suddenly the bills aren't getting paid, and the credit cards are maxed out, and you don't know how you're going to keep a roof over the head of your family. What What are you going to do? Can you say that? He is here, and I trust him. I trust him. You see, I think we buy into this idea that Jesus is enough, God is enough for us when we have enough, when he gives enough. But no, 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 no. He is enough, period. He he is enough when there is nothing left. He is enough when there is nothing else. He is enough simply by being enough. He is enough. And Jesus hangs on the cross and all of his friends have abandoned him. They're all hiding. They're all denying. God himself has removed his hand, giving him over to death. He says, you are still enough. And I trust you. And I have thousands of years of human history that tell me that you are trustworthy. And I'm going to count on that. I'm going to bank on that. Even in this moment to death, I will count on that. The next thing that he says in verse 6, here's what's happening to him. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and wag their heads. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 9, he's going to go into what he's thinking. Yet, you are he who took me from my mother's womb, and you made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Jesus hangs on the cross. And everyone who stands around him, other than his mother, everyone who stands around him mocks him. They make fun, they poke, they prod. They begin to lean in. And, and this, this one whom they one day wanted to be to, to raise up as king, now they belittle and mock and scorn him as he hangs on the cross. Matthew, again, recount, recounts this moment as well. In Matthew 27, verse 36 Matthew records it this way. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, the Roman guards. And over his head they put a charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by, that word is so weird, deride him. I'll look that up later. Deride him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. 
If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Jesus hangs on the cross in all of humanity that is gathered there at Calvary has something to say about him. All of the people who once, once thought he was great and once thought he could rule as king, once thought he could push back the Roman Empire, now they all have something to say. They all have something to mock him, to scorn him. They all have words to, cheer, to, to jeer him on, to deride him, apparently. And in that moment, what does he think? What does he say? What does he do? He says, but there has been one who has loved me perfectly. Every moment of every second of every day, in my darkest hours, in my best times, there is one who has cared for me from the time I came from my mother's womb, from before I was born to the day I die, there is one, and that one is the God of the universe. And so while humanity might mock, while humanity might jeer, while humanity might dry, I rest in this deep theological truth that the God of the universe loves me, delights in me, finds joy in me, is faithful to me. Some of you this morning might just need to let your soul sit in that for a moment. For you, maybe this is, there's something in your life going on right now, or some of your friends, or maybe a friend of yours has kind of turned the rest of your friends against you. Maybe you did something, maybe you said something, maybe you never said anything. Maybe it wasn't something that you did, right? But, but they have lashed out at you, and they've, they've kind of turned everybody against you, and they go out, and they have fun, and they do all these things, but they don't invite you anymore. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe somebody in your family has, has kind of outcast you. And they do Christmas, and they do Thanksgiving, and they do Fourth of July, but they don't invite you anymore. Maybe you did something, maybe you didn't, but either way, they've, they've turned against you. You are no longer in, in their graces. You are the one who is mocked. You are the one that's talked about when, when you are not around. You're the one that's held at a distance. And your soul needs to rest in this morning in the same thing that Jesus' soul rested in in that moment when the people that he loved turned against him. That no matter what any human being thinks, the one who has seen every moment, every hour, every second of your life from birth till the end loves you. And he's far greater than any of them. The God of the universe who has seen your darkest hour, who has seen your greatest sin, who has seen things that you don't want anybody to ever know about, he knows about it and he loves you the same. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what people might say or what people might think. The almighty, all-powerful God of the universe is all-loving towards you. And he longs 
to draw near to you. He longs to find joy in you. He longs to find his delight in you. And maybe your soul needs to rest in the same thing that the soul of Christ rested in in that moment. I'm a worm, not a man, but I'm a worm that is loved by the almighty God of the universe. Next piece is this. Verse 12. Many bulls encompass me, right? A little metaphorically. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like raving and roaring lions. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothes, they cast lots. Matthew writes in Matthew 27, verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. Is there any question? Is there any doubt who's speaking here? Who who is speaking these words? Who's being talked about? Is there any doubt? The person who is, who is forsaken by men and God, the person who is mocked by, by, by the humanity, the person who is put to death on a cross and his garments are divvied up and cast lots for. Is there any question who we're talking about here? Who's speaking a thousand years before he ever shows up? Christ wades in and says, this is how it's going to go down. And in verses 12 through 18, which we just read, it does not go well. The person in 12 through 18 doesn't make it. Their heart melts like wax. They're laid in the dust of death. Their hands, their feet are are pierced. And in the end, there's nothing left to do with their garments because they're not going to wear them again. So they divvy them up and cast lots for them. He doesn't make it. And that's what makes 19 through 31 so confusing. 19 through 31 is this person's thoughts. It says this, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog, Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All of you offspring of Israel, 
For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. For you, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vow I will perform before you, before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. Many may your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Prosperity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. You see, 19 through 31, 19 through 31 doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Because the person in, in 12 through 18 dies. The person in 12 through 18 is laid into the dust of death. They, they, are, they do not survive it. Their heart melts like wax. They, 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 there's no way. They don't, they don't make it. But yet, then, the 19 through 31 is this, this orchestra of praise. If you sum up 19 through 21, it's, it's you are worthy of all praise from all people for all time. The generations will, will tell of your fame and glory. They will worship you. We will speak of, how, of your goodness to, to, these, to people who are yet unborn. We, we will never cease to give you praise because you have done it. What have you done? It doesn't make any sense. Unless the person in 12 through 18 rose from the grave. And unless the person in 12 through 18 conquered sin and conquered death. Unless the person in 12 through 18 is, is the one. Unless the person in 12 through 18 is, is the one who, is, who has conquered all sin, who has absorbed the wrath of God and extended his righteousness upon humanity and is the one who is worthy of all praise. You see, this is what's fascinating about Psalm 22 is that the one who was, who was forsaken, mocked, and killed is the same one who is trustworthy. He's the same one who is perfectly loving. He's the same one worthy of all praise from all people for all time. Jesus is describing himself the entire time. Paul in Colossians writes it this way. In Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Paul says it this way about Jesus. He says, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominion or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. 
and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, the first to raise from the grave. That in everything, that in everything, he might be first, preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. A lot of times uh, at Flourishing Grace, we are, we are, we're asked a question. Um, it actually comes up a lot. I think it's a Utah thing. Not from here. Utah's strange. Um, but fry sauce is delicious. Um, and I love it. Uh, we're asked this question often. What, why, why do you guys make such a big deal out of Jesus? Like, why is he the one that, that is always talked about and always, always preached about? Why, why is it always about Jesus? Why do we care about people having flourishing relationships with Jesus? Why, why Jesus? Because he is the answer to the cry of humanity at every moment and every time throughout all of history. Anytime someone has felt broken, abandoned, shamed, mocked, scorned, sick, weak, he is the answer to that cry. He is the deliverer of the human soul. He's the one being described in every single moment of Psalm 22. He is the one who is fully worthy of all of our trust. Even, even when he seems maybe far off, when he seems distant, he's fully worthy of our trust. He is near. He is fully loving. Even in your most embarrassing, darkest hours, he is loving. And he's worthy of all praise of all people for all time. Why? Because he's the one who was abandoned. He's the one who was mocked. He's the one who died in your place and in mine. He's the one who went to the cross and said, I will take your sin. I will take your shame. I will bear it underneath the wrath of God. I will take the penalty for it all, and I will extend to you my own righteousness, and I'll clothe you in it. And I will renew all things. I'll make all things new. I will restore all things and redeem all things. I will shape and mold a new you, a new heaven, a new earth. And your soul in me, it will live on. I will be the deliverer of your soul. I will be the one. No one else can be. You need him more than I can begin to say. You need him more than I can begin to preach. You need him more than this psalm can even have words to describe. He is the answer to every cry of every human being who has ever lived for all time. He is the only one. The only one who is able to restore what you and what I have broken. And what's crazy is that a, a thousand years before he ever shows up, he speaks these words. He says, this is how it's going to go down. It's not going to be pretty. It's going to be bad. It's going to be painful. It's going to be bloody. The words described, the words used here, just, ah, they're crazy. And he does it anyways. 
He shows up for you and for me. That is why he is everything here at Flourishing Grace, and that's why we long for him to be everything in your life. Because he is everything. He is enough. And he's done it. Done it. It's finished. Let me pray for us. Jesus, this morning we come before you, and, and man, might this just be a call. A call to me, a call to us to treasure you above all things. Might you reorder our loves this morning. There's been things in my life, there's been things in our lives that we've begun to cling to, that we've begun to put our our fingers around, our arms around, and said, this is important, and it's not. It pales in comparison to how much we need you. To reorder our loves. Let us love you first and foremost. Let us be, let you, let, let, let our hearts cherish you above all things. Remind us of our great need for a savior, a deliverer of our souls. Remind us that there is none but you. And you have done it. It is finished. We are yours, and you are our God. From before we are born till after we die. Watch over us, keep us, bless us. Praise in your name. Amen.